Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast, presented by Canon Press. So, I'm Douglas Wilson. This is the Plodcast. This is episode 226 of the Plodcast, and I think that you were very sweet to come. Uh, you are most welcome. Good to have you. So, let's talk about the midterm elections and election reliability. Uh, as those of you who have been following my comments here know that I think that there was a serious amount of funny business in the presidential election in uh, 2020, and you may have heard rumbles about uh, the coming red wave in the midterm elections. The midterms, as I'm, as I'm recording this, we're right at the tail end of January 2022. So the presidential election was in 2020. The, um, uh, the midterms are 2022 in about nine months. So we're almost into February, and it's not that far away. Here's the deal. For, for those, here's a rudimentary uh, civics lesson. The congressman in the House of Representatives, every congressman is up for election every two years. Every congressional district sends a congressman every two years. In the Senate, we have two senators from every state. There are 100 senators total. And every, every two years, one third of them are up for reelection. So, that that's because senators serve a six-year term. So if a senator is elected, he doesn't have to stand for election two years out, nor does he have to stand for election six years out, but he has to stand for election the third year out from his initial election. So every senator is stands for election every six years. And that means a third of the Senate is up for grabs every uh, election cycle. A hundred percent of the House of Representatives is up for election. Now, in this last election, the Democrats did not do nearly as well as some people were predicting in the uh, uh, in the House of Representatives. They control the House of Representatives, but not by a big margin. And the uh, Senate is a functionally a tie, and because the Vice President of the United States is the president. Of the Senate, that means that if it's a tie, then the tie goes to the uh, occupant, the party that controls the White House, which is where we are. So that that means, for example, just a handful of Senate elections, just two Senate elections, could flip the Senate to the Republicans. Or if um, if Joe Manchin of West Virginia or Senator Cinema of Arizona decided to flip and go to the Republicans, that would, that would flip the Senate. It's looking like, it's looking increasingly likely that the Senate is going to go Republican, and it's looking likely that there's going to be a red wave in the House and that the Democrats are going to lose control of the House of Representatives. Now, this is the striking thing. Well, let me give you two, two things. First, some people, some conservatives and poll watchers were so disillusioned by the shenanigans accompanying the presidential election that they say, well, see, everything's rigged. We're not going to get a fair election ever again. It's, the whole thing is 
hopeless. I don't think that that's the case at all, because these are elections that are piecemeal elections in congressional districts all across the country. In our electoral college system, it's a winner-take-all system. Now, I'm a big fan of the electoral college. I like it. I want to keep it. But one of the vulnerabilities of the electoral college system is that what uh, people can do is they can find the pinch points and uh, cheat at the pinch points. And if they do, it's a winner-take-all system. So in a presidential election, even though it's a national office, you don't have to cheat in all 50 states. You, all you need to do is cheat in three counties, right? If you, if you cheat effectively in three counties and you do it intelligently, then you can sway the whole thing. It's not going to be that way in the midterms. That's not what's going to happen in the midterms. In the midterms, it's going to be much more of a fair and square operation, I think, also in the senatorial elections. It's not to say that there won't be cheating, but I think the cheating is the sort of thing that will be able to be accomplished in places that the Democrats would have won anyway. So these midterms are coming up. And if you look at how inept the Biden administration has been in governance, when they controlled both houses of Congress. So they won the election. Biden was inaugurated. He's in the White House. They have control of the Senate. They have control of the House. And they still can't get anything done. What's it going to be like? Okay. What's it going to be like? It's going to be a circus maximus. I'll tell you what it's going to be like. It's going to be a great poo fight in the monkey house. Because if the Republicans take the House and the Republicans take the Senate, and Biden continues on the way he's doing, I think it's going to be pretty hard to head off another impeachment round. And because, well, I don't say this because the Republicans are going to be out for blood or going to be looking for revenge, although I think that will motivate uh, some of them, certainly. But I think that we are observing a grade A disaster of a presidency. And uh, the things that were ignored in the, in the election, uh, the, Biden chi- the Biden ties to China, the corruption of Hunter Biden and Ukraine, and the, the, just the, the things that were glossed over, and the things, that, the things that were major issues during the Trump presidency. And then it's like somebody flipped a switch and they all went away. Uh, when it comes to Biden, I, I think it'd be it would be really hard for the uh, for the Republicans to ignore the demands of their base that they uh, do something about Biden with people not wanting to um, declare themselves until after the well some people will not want to will argue that we should wait till the 2024 presidential election but I think that. Trump is going to make his decision whether or not he's going to run again based on what happens in the midterms. If, if, the, if the midterms um, are, the, uh, are the bloodbath that many people are expecting for the Democrats, then I think that makes it more likely that Trump is going to get in. Uh, Trump is going to get in and if he gets in, what's gonna, is that, that will make everything really festive. So 
we're already into it. It's only months away. So buckle up, right? So we're continuing on with the podcast, episode 226, in our study of hamartiology. Please remember, I think I've been emphasizing this for some weeks now, please remember that some words are always and everywhere descriptive of sin, a word for theft, or a word for adultery, or a word for murder, and so on. But other words are only sinful depending on the context. For example, eklino, that's our word for today. Eklino means to avoid or to go out of the way. Avoiding someone or something is not a problem necessarily, depending on what it is you're avoiding. It's good to avoid child porn. It's good to avoid child porn and not good to avoid your mom. We see a, uh, So this is one of those things where the content comes from the direct object. We see a positive use of this word avoid in 1 Peter 3.11. But here's the negative use, and there's one negative use in Scripture, and it's found in Romans 3.12. They are all gone out of the way. There's our word. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. Romans 3.12. So the word here is rent, eklino, is rendered as gone out of the way. This is what it means to wander, drift off, veer off, apostatize, go into the ditch. When Paul says, There's no, no one is righteous, no, not one, why are they not righteous? Well, they've gone out of the way. They've veered out of the way. They've, they've departed or avoided the way of righteousness. So we're continuing on with the podcast, episode 226. The book I'd like to commend to you this time around is The Discarded Image by C.S. Lewis. The Discarded Image by C.S. Lewis. Now, I've read The Discarded Image a few times, and then I just read it again recently, just within the last month, I read it again, and was greatly blessed and edified by it yet again. It's one of his more academic works, and it's kind of a slog. It, depending on the kind of person you are, it's, it could be kind of a slog. If you, if you want to get the same basic, if you want to get a short form from Lewis on the outline of what he's talking about in the discarded image, there's an essay he wrote called Imagination and Thought in the Middle Ages. And that, that essay is in a book called Studies in Medieval and Renaissance Literature. So, a Lewis book of essays, Studies in Medieval and Renaissance lit- Literature. There's one chapter that's sort of a great summary of the discarded image. Or you can get the discarded image and read through it, and it's going to really shed a lot of light. If you, if you like the Narnia stories and you like the Ransom trilogy, which if you don't like them, you should be at the second stage of the Matthew 18 process. If you like Narnia and you like the Ransom Trilogy, reading through the discarded image is going to help you understand why you like them, why they have this, the, the positive effect that they do. This and this, so here's something you can do. If you want to have your enjoyment of Lewis, let's say you've got kids coming up, or let's say you're moving into the grandparenting years and you're going to be reading the Narnia stories to grandchildren, let's say, and you want your enjoyment this next time around to be fuller, richer, deeper. I really would recommend reading The Discarded Image along with Planet Narnia. 
by Michael Ward. And if you do that, and you then go back to you go back to the um, Narnia stories, you'll discover that the discarded image, the image he's talking about, is the medieval cosmology. What they saw when they looked up at the night sky. What did what did the medievals see? Well, they saw it with their eyes. They saw the same thing that we see. We see a uh, black sky with white dots all over it. So if you're out in the country and there's no light pollution affecting your view, you look up at the black sky and you look, you see white dots all over the white sky, the white dots all over the black sky. But we also see something else and and the sensations we feel when we're looking at the night sky are not a function of what's coming into our eyeballs, what's hitting your retina. It's a function of all the, you know, Star Trek that you watch, Star Trek movies you saw, or the paper mache solar system that you built when you were in third grade and hung from the ceiling of your third grade classroom. That's your cosmology. That's your framework for understanding. So the medieval would see the stars just like we do, and we see the stars just like they do, but we have a set of framework or cosmology or a worldview of assumptions that sort of informs what we think we're looking at. So a modern would look at the stars, and he would have the sensation of looking out. So we, uh, it's like the, our metaphor is that space is like a big ocean, and the planets are like islands in the ocean, and we have ships that we get on. We call them, we even call them ships, space ships, and we sail from one island to another. So when we're, we stand looking at the night sky, we're looking out. A medieval would stand there looking at the night sky, and he would have the sensation of looking up, like, like you were standing at the base of a skyscraper and looking up the side of a skyscraper. He would have that sensation of looking up. Lewis shows in this book, many moderns are uh, sort of contemptuous of the medievals because they, they had a um, geocentric view of the solar system. That was part of their model, the geocentric view of the solar system. And so we think that they were being kind of haughty and proud because they put planet Earth as the center of everything. But again, we're, we're importing some assumptions of our own. The medievals did not think that they were the most important part of the universe because they were at the center. They thought of themselves as being kind of down in the basement. So, and if you went even further down to the basement, to the center of the earth, like in Dante's Inferno, you get down to the very center. What's absolutely center? Well, the devil, right? The devil is at the bottom of the inferno, and Dante and Virgil uh, climb down the side of the devil, and then they start going up the other side. And surely you don't think that the medievals thought that the devil was the absolute center of all things. The devil's not the most important being in the universe. No. So the medievals thought that the center of the cosmos down here in the basement was the lowliest place. And when you looked up, up at the night sky, you were looking up the grand celestial staircase into the place where the, the dukes and the princes and the princesses were having their great ball. And you were a schlub slave or a servant down the down in the basement, and you were out. You were down, and you were out. 
So far from being a conceit of the medievals that we are the absolute center of all things, it was a very humble position for for them. That was their cosmology. This is the sort of thing you will encounter. This is the sort of thing you will read if you um, read The Discarded Image by C.S. Lewis. If you find it a little rough, you know, a little dense, like um, eating a lot of cheesecake, it's the kind of book that if you can get accustomed to, just read a page a day. Just start chipping away at it, and you will learn an awful lot, and it will greatly enhance your enjoyment of the Ransom Trilogy and the Narnia stories. If you enjoyed this episode, check out Doug's page on Canon Plus. There you can listen to his audiobooks, watch his sermons, and more. Just click the link in the show notes and start listening today. Today.